Hi everyone, welcome to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and you're listening to episode 29. We got a special guest today. I'm pleased to announce that it's Cal Penn. You may know him from movies such as the Harold and Kumar series or The Namesake. He's got a book out now and it's an autobiography. It's called You Can't Be Serious. If you're someone on a journey trying to make it far, trying to establish themselves in their respective industries, then this is the book for you because it provides you with life lessons, it gives you inspiration and strength, guidance, and so much more. So I really recommend this book, especially to the young people in arts. Like, this is it. So yeah, before we start the episode, I'd just like to take a second and say that the Brown History Instagram page and the Brown History Podcast takes a lot of work and a lot of time. And if you want to help out, if you want to support please do consider being a patron. All you have to do is visit brownhistorypodcast.com. Cool. So I think that's everything. So without further ado, let's begin. Yeah, it's still early. You're, are you in Canada? Yeah, I'm in Toronto. Yeah. Where are you? Uh, I'm in LA right now. I'm kind of on the road. I know. I've been following your IG stories and you're a busy guy. You went to Greenland and now you're talking to me in a podcast. You see the shift in, the, in your day to day? Uh, I, I guess, but it's all in service of the same goal, which is it, which is nice. And it's also really, just really surreal to be, uh, back on the road after, you know, a year and a half of being in the except I did, uh, I've lived in Toronto off and on the last five years. And so there was like, I guess, seven years, seven months during the pandemic, I was working on a show. Up oh, there. not that anything was open, but no, you know. it was tough here. How did you like it? I mean, you, you did Harold and Kumar here too. So you're yeah, very familiar with the city. Yeah, I was there for three years for a designated survivor, also, which was which was cool. Uh, I love yeah. Toronto. It's, it's such a such a nice place. Um, I'm I think I'm back in February for the month. I hope stuff stays open. But yeah, I hope so too. Um, so we can get started if you want. We kind of already started. Uh, I read your book. I loved it. Thank um, you. I'm sure you know different readers have different connection to it. Uh, as a South Asian, I'm sure I'm I'm more connected to it than than a lot of other people. And when I was reading it. Honestly, I expected it to be kind of a funny, lighthearted book. But for me, at least, it was a... I mean, the first thing I did was I told my 17-year-old cousin in New York to go, like, listen, forget Dale Carnegie, forget your self-guide, self-help books. You know, this is a book you need to make it in this society because you're a brown kid in a, in a predominantly white community. And I wanted to know if that was your intention when you were writing that book or what was your intention? Thank you. That, that means a lot to me to hear you say that because one of the, one of the reasons that I wrote the book was, was basically just wanting, um, I wanted there to be, I wanted to write it for the, the 20 year old version of myself. So, you know, the, the young, I wouldn't even call I mean, a kid. Yeah. But kind of the, the young man who, in my case, moved to LA and was trying to break into the entertainment industry. But I, it, the, that's the story of, of how you, you know, whether it's personal sacrifice, whether it's working your ass off, whatever you do to get your foot in the door and whatever the industry is, is kind of universal. And I, I thought um, if there's a story to tell, you know, then, and if it can appeal to the 20 year old version of me, that would be incredible. But then there's also, and I think this probably speaks to hopefully your, uh, your 17 year old cousin, nowadays more so than 10 or 15 years ago, this idea that you have to choose just one thing in your life is almost totally out the window, right? People have multiple, yeah. multiple interests. The world is not made up of binary or mutually exclusive choices necessarily. It doesn't mean that you don't have to make sacrifices. It just means that um, people tend to approach life in a little more dynamic way. And I thought maybe there is a story for me to tell. You know, the idea of a book went back like, I want to say 10 years ago that when, when I left my job at the white house, my manager, I've only had one acting manager in Los Angeles, my entire career. He's, he's a very quirky, amazing guy. I describe him. I described him this way in the book and it's true. He's like every show, every character from the show entourage in one person. Yeah. So like a ridiculous person, but also heart of gold. And, and uh, he called me and said, you should write a book when I left the white house. And I was like, no, nah, man, why would I write a book? And he goes, well, you realize nobody, nobody has gone from, working in Hollywood to working in politics. Yeah. I was like, literally the governor of California is Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, come on, man. <laughs> it's not, you know, it might be less common, but it's, <laughs> it's not. Of. And then I basically said, look, the reason that I, that I worked in the white house is not to write a book about it. I did it because I felt passionately about serving my country and it's a 
a rare moment in history. And if I could be helpful, I want it to be helpful. And I just don't think it's right to write a book about it. And I kind of let it sit for a while. And then I also just didn't feel like there was a, a real story to tell. And then it was a good four or five, five years later, maybe, where I thought to myself, everything that I just said about the 20 year old me and people who don't view the world through a binary lens. And I thought, okay, maybe I do have a story to tell that hopefully resonates with people. And you never know when you're writing something, whether people will or won't respond to it. But um, I, I was excited to write it and then, you know, came together slowly because I'm a very slow writer. <laughs> well, what surprised me was that, well, I've been watching you since, you know, growing up, like you've always, you've always been on my radar, obviously, because you are brown and I'm brown. And I've, I've always watched your interviews and talk show hosts and all these things. And I've never heard you speak of any of these stories that you wrote in your book. You know, it's always about the movie or the work you're doing. And the difference between you and Arnold Schwarzenegger is that, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger sure is an immigrant, but he was a lot more accepted than you are. And in your book, you kind of, it's not just a how-to guide. It's more like this kind of how to deal with people, how to swallow your pride and it's okay to be rejected and you just keep moving forward. You know, it was real. It was an honest portrayal of what you have to do and how you have to deal with things and you have to pick your battles. And, and it was really inspirational, right? However, at the end, the book, the second last chapter, okay, which it, it hurt me that it kind of ends in a, in a sour note. And I wanted to know why you ended it, the book like that. So I don't feel that it ends on the sour note. And I'll tell you. Don't. You I was like rooting for you. We're rooting for you throughout. And then boom. Okay, if you're looking for the book to end with some incredible triumph, I agree. You like might mighty ducks. Yeah, you might be like, "What the fuck? How come there's no you know moment of winning the Oscar at the end, right?" Or yeah. or something like that. But I think the reason that um, the reason that I put the tag in at the end, frankly, is the the story about my dad. I don't want to ruin it for folks who haven't read or, or listened to. Yeah. It. Um, but the, that second to last chapter about a show called Sunnyside, the reason that I put it in there is the subtext of the book is about how systems can and do change. And we tend to think of things through the lens of like this end goal, right? Like if the end goal is success and success is usually defined by either money or status or some, some tangible thing yeah. that we do that as being the epitome of success. And I don't tend to view it that way. And especially since the book was about how systems change over time, like undoubtedly so many stories about being Desi and dealing with racism in Hollywood at a time that was now 20 years ago, like that shit thankfully doesn't happen in that way anymore. Does it, does it still happen to people? And is race still a factor? Obviously, undoubtedly, but the entertainment industry has changed in wonderful, amazing ways. And I wanted to acknowledge that. Um, but to me, that story, that story about Sunnyside was both the frustration of learning how the industry has changed or hasn't changed. It's also about how platforms like streaming and technology have affected Hollywood and why there's such a disparity between network TV and things like Hulu and Amazon and Netflix. Um, but then it was, it was also about how that was still very special. Like we deal with rejection and failure at every step of our careers, whether you're an actor or whether you have a more traditional job or something else. And to me, the, the, as hurtful as it was to deal with what happened on Sunnyside, yeah. I came out of it realizing nobody can take away the thing that we did accomplish. It was the most diverse show on network TV. We did have the most diverse writer's room. We had an entire writer's room full of people who were either immigrants or the immediate family members of immigrants on an amazing network show. You can't take that away. Even though the show was not successful, even yeah. though it got prematurely, even though it had a network that didn't know what to do with it and didn't choose to support the show, Yes, that's the business side of it. And yes, that's a business failure that you deal with and you come out stronger from. But the special aspect of what that show meant and the fact that it was possible meant that I wanted to tell that story and I wanted to tell it in an authentic way. And I know it stings. And I think part of the reason that I wanted to make sure that that was all authentic is yeah. to, to be truthful. Like, this is not, I'm 44. I hope to write more books. I hope to share more stories. I hope so. You know, the, the idea of writing a memoir as a 44-year-old is a little ridiculous. If it's like, and that was my life. There we go. That's the end of it. Um, so I wanted to tell it in an authentic way, you know. And, and yeah, you're right. Some of, those, some of those stories are not necessarily the happy-go-lucky. But the, the reason I ended it with my dad, um, and you should, uh, if you're using this in the podcast, if this doesn't get edited out, you can fast forward maybe 30 seconds if, if, you, don't want, if you don't want it spoiled for you. But I, I, that la the actual last 
section and it's just a two or three page thing. But I called my parents because one of the originally I was going to end the book with how they felt, uh, how embarrassed they were about my acting journey. Because I thought that after writing the Sunnyside chapter, I wanted to be truthful to like bookend it with my dad and bookend it with my parents. And those early chapters are about aunties and uncles saying, you know, that I should do anything other than acting. It's the pressure that you get yeah. from brown folks, right? So I called them and I said, um, hey, so I, I'm done with the Sunnyside chapter. I want to write a chapter about about you guys again. And I want to write about how embarrassed were you? You know, when I would, the aunties and uncles would all sit around the table or in the living room and ask everybody what they wanted to do in college or what you're doing after high school. And everyone was going to some engineering program, science, like seven-year pre-med medical program, all that nonsense. Uh, no disrespect to people who pursued it. But for a young artist, I was like, I want to go to theater and film school, right? And everybody laughs at you. And I said, how embarrassed were you? That I, that I said that publicly at those family functions. And my parents said, um, we were never embarrassed. We were always scared. Like it was the idea of fear that we didn't know that this was a career somebody could have in a place like America. You know, we didn't know that you could put a roof over your head from it. And we didn't know that it could actually be a career that makes somebody happy. And so the whole time we were just scared. We weren't embarrassed. And to be sure, like, of course, when aunties and uncles throw shade, there is embarrassment. There yeah. is. A yeah. But to know that my parents' biggest thing was fear, A, made that chapter very short. I was ready to write 20 pages to wrap up the book. It only ended up being three because it literally was about, it was unexpected to me. And it, maybe it seems silly that, of course, fear is a big driver for immigrants. That's, that's universal. Just when you apply it to your own story, I was not expecting my parents to say that. And I, was, I wasn't expecting them to, to be so transparent and for it to be relatively simple. Like, yo, it's fear. That's what it was. That's it. So it, that's also why that, that actual last chapter is so short, because it automatically ties in the first chapter without being heavy handed. Well, your parents were scared for you, but growing up, weren't you scared? Because, you know, my, my siblings have kids who are like younger than three or four years old. And whenever they see a teenager that that they think is like well-behaved and smart, they run up to them and then they start asking questions like, what did your parents do to raise you? What tips can we do? Things like that. And when I'm reading your book, I'm trying to see the difference between you and me, because we both have similar upbringings where we're, you know, we, we are fish out of water. And I wanted to know that there's part of you that's just very brave, right? There's, you're just, you know, if I want to be, if I want, I want to avoid being fish out of water. So I would avoid places and environments that, that make me stick out, but you kind of go in headstrong you go to drama classes, you go to camp. I want to know what made you brave. Like how were you such a brave person, which by the way, throughout your whole life, you're kind of quitting your acting job to go to the white house. You're just doing brave, strong, brave. courageous things. Brave. Every, you can easily replace the word brave with stupid through all of <laughs> No, 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 no. Uh, I thank you, by the way, I, I, I think it really for like, let's start with the acting stuff first. Like I, I, I think everything you described about not wanting to be a fish out of water is totally valid. And I think that this is the difference between um, somebody who is an artist and somebody who has the arts as a hobby, which is that you kind of have to be completely insane if you're pursuing a career in the arts. And I think if you ask most people, who are musicians or dancers or, or visual artists or certainly actors or writers, it's not, it, th there was never necessarily a choice of doing it. It was a thing that you felt like you had to do, right? Artists feel like they have to do this. They have to do their art. They have to express it in some way. And it looks different for different people. And to, to be fair, obviously there are plenty of people who have multi-hyphenate careers who are doctors and also artists every summer or things like that. But in my case, it was really less of a calculus. It was more of a, this is who I am. And I really want to do this and I have to do this. Wow. So less of a, um, should I, and more of a, I'm going to do this. So I don't know if that answers the question or makes it more excruciating to have to. <laughs> I'm saying, I'm saying, no, I understand what you're saying, but I understand, I understand that you had this kind of determination, but you must have been in an environment where your parents must have, I guess, giving you some empowerment or or you were maybe just a very brave guy to begin with like you were just born like that because it's scary to go out there and be judged by people on your skin color on your name and your religion 
and, and, and it could really hurt a child at a young age. Yeah. I mean, it's scary, but if you want it, you gotta, you gotta, yeah. you gotta get out there and get it. Otherwise you, I, you know, this is a question. It's funny like this. It's a conversation that comes up a lot when I do, I do a lot of college speaking gigs. And sometimes there are um, like the, the 20 year old DC version of me, right. Who raise her hand and say, um, Hey, I, uh, I really want to be a dance major or I really want to be a creative writing major but um, my parents won't let me do it. Do you have any advice? And I'll always say, well, what's your major? And usually it's engineering or pre-med. And my answer is always the same, which is I don't think you actually want to be a dancer or a creative writing major. And I'm not the one who should decide that for you. But the reason I feel like you probably don't really want it is you're majoring in something very specific that requires an incredible amount of willpower and energy and drive and focus and determination. Like, you can't just go to med school and be a doctor because your parents pressured you to. You also have to really put in the work, right? Like, right. not like magic. So, um, so it's the, I would apply it to the same thing of people who, who truly want to be artists and want to put themselves out there for it because the, the hardest conversation to have is never the conversation with your parents, as evidenced by a lot of the stories in the book, right? Going on right. those, being told, where's your turban? Can you go home and put a bed sheet on your head? when I tell them that I'm not sick, like all of that kind of shit is way, that rejection is way harder. Those conversations are way more tricky than having to sit through aunties and uncles berating you for not going to med school. So I just think that dynamic is one that I always want to respect, which is people love the idea of doing something different. And a lot of times doing something different means do it over the summer, do it as a hobby, do it as that, that extra thing that you do. It doesn't have to be your, your whole career because those careers that people are crushing medicine engineering law like those also require a whole lot of uh, energy i don't think we acknowledge enough so it, i don't know if that answered your question but i, I just feel yeah. like it's it's less of like a how did you make the choice to do it versus you just if it's your passion you just do it um you know i a lot of people submit their story a lot of people submit uh stories of their grandparents of their stories and i always believe that you know when you have a good sense of your history your personal and collective history you can go really far in life and it can bring you strength and pride and a lot of things to carry on and i read in your book and i was surprised to see how you know at a, such a young age you were very curious about your grandparents and their history and their story and i was also very much surprised to see how you carried that throughout your white house career and i wanted to know especially for the people listening i guess first of all would you like to tell us for people who didn't read the book would you like to tell us uh who your grandfathers were and how they were part of the uh struggle for freedom against the british and i wanted to know like how much of that kind of influenced you as a child and then how did you carry that as an adult that's a very big question but oh i'm happy shot. It was a big, it's a big part of who I am. And so it's, it, I, I couldn't truthfully write the book without talking about it so much. Um, and uh, it, so it, what is interesting to me always is there are so many people whose grandparents have these, by our definition, just wild stories, right? The, the town I went to middle school in was predominantly Jewish town. And so many people's grandparents had stories about surviving the Holocaust. And so it was like, if you, if you looked at the history textbook version of that, it would, you know, maybe, I don't want to say minimize it, but it would only give you a small sliver of what that was like. And then you meet people's grandparents and it's so many people. It's not just a one person's grandparent did something. And it, it, it's that idea of, 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 of course, a certain amount of, of just, being able to talk about something for that next generation, that must be incredibly difficult. And it was around that time that I, uh, that I really got a sense of what my grandparents had, had raised us with. So from the time we were little kids, we kind of knew like, okay, especially my, my mom's parents were uh, active in the Indian independence movement. Didn't really know what that meant. It was like, okay, you're eating your subsidy or your shock. And like your grandma is telling you stories about like marching when she was a young girl against the British. I'm like, here we go again. Here's another story about marching with Gandhiji, right? You don't really know what it even means until, for me, until middle school when there were chapters about Gandhi that showed up in our American history book because the the nonviolent civil disobedience connection between Gandhi and King. And and that was when I kind of was like, oh, wait a second, and asked my grandparents again to tell me stories. And the, the 
the impression when you read a history book is like, oh, if somebody if somebody marched with Gandhi, they must have been good friends. They must have known each other. They must have gone over to each other's houses. And the reality with movements that make it so beautiful and so pivotal is when you read about it in a history book, you almost feel like, oh, this is inaccessible. And then you actually talk to people who have lived it, and it is millions of people. I mean, these movements only work when we all show up, right? And so I don't know if my grandparents even met Gandhiji. I just know that as young people, they thought that it was important to show up. And my grandfather would go to marches and get beaten and jailed by British soldiers. My grandmother, I I was just home uh, two days ago, and my mom showed me... um, a letter that my grandmother wrote that she found. And thankfully this, this one was in English. I think it was a translation from a Gujarati letter, but she, there's a, a, a short sentence. Actually, hang on. I think I might've taken a picture of it. Um, I asked my mom to scan it for me and send it. And she has not yet, but uh, give me a second. Cause I, this one sentence in particular, if I can find it is. Yeah. Here it is. Um, okay. I'm going to get a little emotional. I'm glad you're not using this video. Um, I gave up taking tea in 1929 because Gandhi explained that our workers in the tea gardens were exploited. And it was like, this whole letter is not about fighting for freedom, but a couple of sentences there, I'm reading it and I'm like, my grandmother, I don't know how old she was to stop drinking tea in 1929, but little things like that, that, you know, that those were the family values that we, were raised with. And again, it was not the like, oh, your grandfather won all these awards and did all this incredible stuff and was the reason that this thing happened. It was like, no, you're a a small cog in the wheel of doing the right thing, making sure you make your voice heard in the way that will help your community. They also, they were, they were incredibly secular in the best ways. Like they were, you know, they were, they're Gujarati, they were religious Hindu in their own way, but also phenomenally secular. Like I remember my grandparents encouraging us to go to like the mosque or the church or temple and like whatever, you know, whatever that was like, which, which you look at, you look at how divided, not just South Asia, but really like look at how divided society is on, on faith lines today, especially amongst brown folks. And I just think about how my grandparents were not like that. You know, they, they were very Gandhian in their, in their views of of faith and everything. So to answer your question on how that affected me, I mean, I think that was always, in the back of my head till probably middle school. And then really in the, in the front of my brain, just because those were the, those were the values that we were raised with. It was more, it was less about politics. It was less about, you know, uh, about being the person who, who's known for anything and more about like, yo, keep your head down and do good work. You know, yeah. Show, by 2021 standards, it's uh, I guess it's check your privilege. You know, that's, that's how we were raised. There's a phrase for it now, but back then it was just what it was. That's amazing. That's like, wow. I can't believe you have a letter. That's really cool. There are a few letters. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hoping to get the scans from my, my mom. I, I'd like to turn them into something. Did your, any of your grandparents get to see you in the White House? Uh, no, they all passed away before that, um, which is one of the reasons I wanted to bring. Uh, there's a, uh, a section in the book where I talk about bringing, there was a, a photo of Gandhi that my uh, mom's parents had in their uh, house growing up in, in India. Uh, that I remember seeing when we would go visit them over the summers. And after they passed away, we brought the photo back and it was in my parents' attic. And I wanted to hang it in my in my office at the White House just because I thought, you know, this is sort of a, a tribute to them. And I just want to be reminded when I go to my desk every morning of of their struggles, uh, just as a as a frame of reference. So so they never um they never knew that I worked at the White House, but they my, my, my mom said something very, um, very humbling and very sweet. There, there was a, I had the chance to speak at uh, Obama's inaugural concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, um, which by the way, the, that whole story is really ridiculous in, in a funny way, which is why I put it in the book. It's basically my dad, like just being an Indian uncle about the whole thing. I loved it. I loved it. Thank you. It was a, that was, I mean, the whole book is true, obviously, but that in particular, I'm like, Dad, I'm just letting you know I'm telling I'm telling the Tiger Woods story in this book. He doesn't uh, know. He doesn't know. No, no, he know. Of course, he knows now. Okay, but okay. I have to be like, I'm just letting you know I'm putting it in there. And then i i sent them I sent them an early draft of it. And I think it was 
I think my dad was like, did it really happen like this? And my mom was like, of course it happened like that. <laughs> so, um, but at that inaugural concert, she said that my, my mom, after I came off stage and we were all backstage, um, she said your grandparents would have been very proud of you today. And I just wow, that's sweet. Because it was really a very humbling, humbling moment. Were your, were your parents, um, you know, in the, in the activism category i mean i knew you grew up in jersey and and i think the i think for in for the south asian community in america the dot busters was a really big thing and and i think that was when people started first you know begin to mobilize against something some kind of injustice and and you talk about it a bit in the book but i want to know what were your experiences like growing up during the era of the dot busters so the, my aunt lived in jersey city where the dot busters were were active and i remember my grandmother the one who who wrote that letter that I just read you an excerpt from. Um, I remember she would get taunted on the street by, you know, thugs who would yell racist. Right. And I remember her just talking about how it, it didn't seem like it bothered her. She was like, oh, these, this is ridiculous. I just ignore it. And I guess, you know, in, after, after you've marched against, you know, the British, a bunch of, bunch of third-rate Jersey racists are not really going to scare you that way, but it was scary right me I, I don't remember hearing my parents talk about it explicitly I don't remember I don't know if that's because they sheltered us from it or and talked about it privately or what but we also didn't live in Jersey City we lived in suburbs that were a little more sheltered from from something like that but of course I remember it and I, I just remember it being kind of normal it was codified you know these people had a platform and they they, they were not uh those hate crimes weren't even really prosecuted I think there was a murder that somebody got like maybe five or six years yeah and for like that's it that's what your life is worth you know it it, it was it was scary but it's also I, I think about it in the context of what's what's happening now as a reminder of like we need to show up you know brown folks we need to show up for for black lives matter uh marches and we need to be there for people you know in the diaspora and outside of the diaspora because this kind of stuff is not a one-off and it, it does affect multiple communities that that we need to be there for you know, there's a chapter missing in your book, you know, between uh, Van Wilder and Harold and Kumar, you made a movie called Where's the Party Are? Oh, actually, and was it before Van Wilder or was it? I think it was after. I think it was 2003. Yeah, yeah. Right. And I, I felt like, you know, I remember that movie coming out. I mean, I don't remember seeing any ads or anything like that, but I remember that was a movie where brown kids would tell other brown kids, yo, check out this movie, check out that movie. And it was just purely word of mouth. I just identified with it. And I wanted to know, like, you know, first of all, why didn't it make the cut of the book? And second of all, how did that movie become what it is? And like, how did you end up making it? Uh, the book is already 370 pages. And trust me, I want, there are a lot of stories I wanted to add that ended up either getting cut or that I didn't end up end up writing. Uh, so hopefully, you know, hopefully people like it and I can, I can do another one. But uh, Where's the Party Are was a movie that uh, I would put in the same vein as there was a film I did years before that called American Desi. Um, there was uh, American Chai that I was not in. There was ABCD that I also, excuse me, wasn't in. Um, but a lot of these movies were around the same time, plus or minus like three or four years. Uh, they all they all were, you know, with this that this generation of of Desi actors who were coming up in New York and L.A who didn't really have, we didn't have other opportunities in the film space. Like these were the only ones. And in both cases, I remember American Desi, Piyush Pandya, who is a phenomenal guy, a really great guy, wrote, wrote this movie. He is, I believe, a chemical engineer by trade uh, still, I think, and just wanted to make movies and went to, you know, went to film school on the side and wrote this fun script, got it funded somehow. You know, it had a micro budget. We shot it over the course of a summer in New York. I think it was when I was going into my, I took five years to graduate college. So I think it was going into my fifth year. Um, and then where's the party are was a few years after that similar thing. Like uh, Benny Matthews directed it. I think he was a music video director uh, primarily um, a guy named Sunil Tucker, who runs an entertainment and DJ, like a, a radio show in Houston um, exec produced it. And again, it was like a labor of love for, for people who weren't, uh, weren't doing it full time and were finding actors and wanting to tell our stories in a way that nobody else wanted to, wanted to tell, um, you know, they were micro budget. I think, you know, we got paid maybe a thousand dollars for it, um, for a, a month or two of work. And then, uh, 
Desis being Desis, you know, people bootlegged that shit. So it's not like there was money in it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I, I, I must confess. Well, of course, I'm not, you know, it was, I, I remember explaining to uncles were like, I, yeah, I got the, I got the VHS from, you know, India Sweets and Spices. And then I made 15 copies for my friends because we wanted to support you. I'm like, uncle, that's stealing. No, 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 no. I got, I rented it. I'm like, right. You paid a dollar and it came on VHS with a handwritten label. He's like, yeah, but that person paid for it. It's legal. I'm like, it's not legal, but let's not have this fight right now. Thank you for, you know, thank you for the love. So it was interesting. I, I've, I've often wondered yeah. if, like, if brown people have not, if, if we hadn't shot ourselves in the foot, I don't know. I don't know if those would have been lucrative enough for like studios to take notice, but you know, it's obviously before streaming, it's before distribution mechanisms that have gotten thankfully ahead of piracy a little bit. Um, but it was cool to see how people came out for those movies. Cause obviously we didn't have movies like that. You know, when, when I was in high school, we had Mississippi Masala, which was awesome. And maybe one or two things like that, but uh, uh, they were a real blast to work on. You know, they were, they were a lot of fun. And when I say micro budget, like I really mean we were either I, I was living with my parents when we shot American Daisy um, in New Jersey because we shot it in New York. And then for where's the party are was in Houston. And I think I for part of it, I think I stayed with an auntie or uncle. And then the other part of it, um, we stayed in like a roadside motel, um, you know, like a $40 a night kind of motel to to get the, the movie made. Um, but I have really good memories of it. Wait, how do you get it now? Is it online somewhere? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's that's them supporting you still. Fine, watch it on YouTube. Yeah, it's on YouTube. You know, there's another chapter missing in your book is, uh, you know, you mentioned, you casually mentioned in the book that you're gay and you kind of just like, you just make it so casual, like as if like that is something we should know. Yeah. And I want to know why you decided to come out like that and i also want to know there's a chapter missing where you kind of don't talk about how you told your parents that you're gay and how did they react to it and i don't know if i'm crossing the lines here if you don't want me to talk about this but yeah great question so chapter 18 i talk about my my partner josh and how we met and there are a couple nice times guy. Uh, yeah no great great guy very quiet which is yeah you know similar to my parents i mean the, the amount of times i called my parents to ask if it was okay to tell certain stories because they're very private people also um, and both they, I mean, Josh and I've been together for 11 years. My, my brother is very quiet. My parents are also shunned the limelight and all of them have always come to premieres and openings and they've met my work friends and, you know, college friends, all of that. Um, I've, I've been open in my, my, my real life in that sense. Uh, and I've always tried to be respectful of them. So like, we'll pull up to a premiere and, uh, they immediately go through the side entrance. So like, we're going to grab the popcorn. We'll see you at the seats. I'm like, you don't want to do one photo on the red carpet with me? They're like, hell no. We will see you inside. You do your interviews, whatever you have to do. We don't like cameras. We don't like the limelight. So most of, um, you know, mo most of my journey in terms of my relationship, I'm so happy to share with people, but it's just not wanting to be disrespectful to um, my parents, my brother, and this Josh. Um, but the, the other reason that I, I didn't really write about the process of, of uh, coming out to them was, which, you know, was probably years ago, I, I shared that with my, um, I discovered my sexuality relatively late in life. Not that there's a timeline on it, but I just, you know, so many people are like, Oh, I was eight years old. And I knew it's like, Oh man, I'm so jealous. <laughs> well, how old were you when you found out? Probably tw late twenties, mid to late twenties, I would say. Okay. Um, and I shared it with my parents and my brother first. And I think the, uh, you know, by virtue of them being relatively progressive, but also, you know, they've lived outside of New York city most of their lives. Right. That conversation, I think for me went, uh, was a lot probably easier than it has been for a lot of people. And I, I wanted to respect that space, you know, for, for them. I think a lot of people will have um, a journey that's very different from mine. In my case, you know, you alluded to this, but it's all true. Like you tell Brown people that you're going to be an actor the shit that you get for that is going to be way harder than anything else that you will ever have to do in life. Right. That's I think there's, even, what's that British, there's a British, uh, there's a British sketch comedy show. I'm totally blanking on this. Um, it's old. It's, it's probably nineties or two thousands. Um, not the Kumars at 42. There's another one. Um, South Asian oh. one. Yeah. Yeah. It's really funny, but they, they had a sketch that was similar to this where it was like, um, there was a guy who brought home his boyfriend and 
his, uh, his boyfriend was white and in the sketch he like comes out to his parents and introduces his boyfriend and the parents don't say anything about him being gay but they're like white you're dating him he's white no 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 what happened to an indian guy right which is kind of funny because it, it plays on on those layers of like so it, so my experience was like it, it was just way more complicated to tell the community that you're that you want to pursue a career in the arts than it was to to tell them that you're gay um but again to me when you're putting stories like that together that's probably one of the many stories that if i if i write a second book i can i can share more on but it was relatively straightforward for me compared to what i think a, a lot of people um experience when they when they share that with family and friends my family's been been great and supportive and plenty of cousins i'm i'm not the oldest i'm not the youngest so i'm sort yeah. of like right in the middle there um but i i am fortunate in that sense that my parents have been have been cool and why'd you decide to announce it to now i mean I, so I, i really don't view it as an announcement you know i oh so you were pretty open about it just no one just cared enough to report it Yeah, if, there, if you've never met me, there's not really been a reason for you to know or a way for you to know. I see. Uh, but, it's, you know, strangers, Josh and I have met at bars. We're like, oh, how do you guys know each other? I was like, well, it's my fiance. You know, we've been engaged for three years. I think because it's in the book, and this was maybe me being a little naive, but um, I just didn't think that was the most interesting part of the book. So I didn't think it was going to be like, to me, I thought if journalists are going to write about the book, they're going to write about what it's like being a brown man trying to struggle yeah. in or working for the first black president those to me are the more interesting things because they're the things based on merit right like those are the things i worked my ass off for those are the things that i struggled through that i'm the the triumphs and the things that i think people can learn from and i just didn't think because the the really the one chapter in the book that was the easiest to write was how josh and i met and fell in love that's chapter 18 because i didn't have to do anything there's no merit there <laughs> like i didn't have to go to school for that i didn't have to you know, uh, make sacrifices for, for that. So, um, so no, I, I, I totally obviously respect that, that it's something that people are curious about. And I'm always happy to, happy to talk about it. Um, I just very naively thought that would be the least interesting part of the book, but it's, it was a, it was a chapter in the book I was excited to share because we've been together for 11 years and it's a, it's an important part of, of, of my journey also. So wanted to tell it in a truthful way. That's really, really a beautiful, sweet story. You know, there's a chapter in your book where you are doing a part in a Bollywood movie, and it's a great story and everything. But what I really wanted to know what your what was your experience because it's very rare to see a Hollywood actor go into Bollywood, and you have this kind of diaspora desis, and then you have desi desis, and yeah. you are usually you hear stories about people coming from the homeland to America, but you went back to this other film industry that we all grew up with. I want to know what was your experience like working in Bollywood and, and seeing how things were, were things different? Was it like, you know, like it was it like a going back to your childhood kind of thing. <laughs> so look, the, the movie that I write about in the, in the book, which was a ridiculous experience. Was it, was it Bhopal? Uh, I cannot tell you the name of which one it was. There are a few that I've worked on there. Yeah. But most of the ones I've worked on have not been song and dance movies. Right. So um So I hesitate saying, you know, look, I've worked on three Bollywood movies, maybe three or four that have shot in India. So who am I to say that here's the big comparison between Hollywood and Bollywood? But I enjoyed all of, all of them because the, yeah, the approach is a little bit different. The approach to filmmaking, the approach to scheduling or safety on set or, you know, uh, whether things run on time or early or how you find locations or, you know, how you got to grease the wheels in India just to get those locations There was a project I worked on uh, that um, I, I remember what, you know what, I'll, I'll just say this because enough time has passed. Uh, there was an Amazon series I worked on um, called, uh, hang on, the title changed so many different times. This Giant Beast That Is the Global Economy on Prime. Really fun series, guy named Dave Lavin, uh, fantastic. Great, nice guy, I've met him. Great guy, yeah, he worked at Vice for years. Like, this was such a dope series. I really love this, and I'd love to do something like that again. We went to, like, 18 different countries to research and shoot. And we had uh, two or three stops, in, or two or three different cities in India. And I, we were shooting in this market one day, and these cops come over, and they're talking to one of the producers, or one of the line producers, I think one of the local, like, uh, India fixers, basically. And the show was about uh, corruption, right? Or part of the show is about corruption. So later on, I went over to the to this local producer and I was like, 
hey, so did those cops come to ask for a bribe? And he goes, no, 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 man, come on. I was like, really? They just, what, they just wanted to come by? And they came by to check to make sure everything was going smoothly for us because we paid the bribe last week. So they just wanted to make sure everything was okay. I was like, there it is. There it is. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's just kind of like, a, you know, and, and, and to be fair, the reason I hesitated for a second is Amazon had no idea this was happening. It's against corporate policy for all these Western companies to knowingly pay these bribes to make it happen. But when you use third parties to kind of grease the wheels, no or anything, way. they would not have known that this was a reality of, of making that segment. But it's also not a thing that like, you know, it's funny to tell a story about how like, yo, somebody on the team had to pay a bribe and we didn't know and blah, blah, blah. But it's an alternate economy. Like in the US or in Canada, that's just a permit filing fee. Like it's codified, you know, you got to go to the local city office and pay a fee to get the permits to block yeah. up the in a place like India. I don't know if there's also a permit fee, but like, you got to take care of your local peeps and then they come to check to make sure everything's okay. Like it's just an alternate way of doing business. So I think th- those were kind of the, the, the kind of funny things about making it, but, but also Bollywood is, has changed so much. The, the streaming platforms, I don't know how much of, of Netflix or Amazon Bollywood stuff you watch, but it is awesome, man. It's like, pretty good. Like the, it's getting uh, better and better. Better and better. There are so many incredible streaming shows like, and, and by like amazing, like Amir Khan, Zoya Akhtar, like people who I really admire and respect are yeah. Gunit Monga, like they're just crushing it at all of this stuff. And I've been trying to learn, uh, or I've been trying to perfect, I speak Gujarati fluently. My Hindi is hit or miss, depending on how much advanced time I have for the script. Um, but I would love to continue working because what I love about acting is, is different forms of storytelling. And there are so many incredible, talented uh directors and writers coming out of india right now but there's a lot of movies now that they just it's in english you don't have to speak hindi or gujarati yeah. um you know one of the movies that i like to come back to is the namesake and i don't know if i want to ask questions because i think everyone probably asks you that question questions about it all the time but uh i think as a kid i didn't appreciate the movie as much but as i'm getting older i'm 34 now and I'm reading, you know, as I watch the movie, it, it really touches you in, in different levels now. And I wanted to know at the time, did you like, I'm sure you knew that it was a great book and everything. But what I wanted to know was, do you think it would have such a big cultural significance to brown people at that time and grow to be bigger and bigger? What's amazing to me. So uh, the, the book, I was a fan of Jumpa's writing uh, for a few years before having the chance to do the movie because. John Cho, who plays Harold in, in the Harold and Kumar movies, he and I are both avid readers. And he asked me uh, what I thought of Interpreter of Maladies. And I was like, oh, I've never read it. And he freaked out. He's like, you've never read Interpreter of Maladies? And he bought me a copy. He's like, read this right now. And I, of course, loved it. And then we both read the namesake together. And um, what was awesome about the outcome of the namesake was seeing how many, of course, how many brown folks identified with the story, but how many non-brown folks identified with that story? Because it's a story about... Uh, it's a story about family. It's a story that a lot of people, no matter where you're from, you know, you settle in the UK, Canada, India, Australia, the US, you can relate to different aspects of it. And one thing that I really love about what we do as actors and filmmakers is the universality of certain stories. So even though it's a a specific slice of life, if people can relate to it on a human level, even if their background isn't the background of the characters, to me, that's a, a real magic to, to what we have the opportunity to do. And of course, it's Mira and Jumpa and Sunni who wrote the, the script adaptation. Like, that's why it works. You know, it's, it, it's these, these three women and Lydia who, who produced it, like, who really are so good at that. And, and I, uh, you know, I, that, I say that's my favorite thing I've ever had the chance to, yeah. to work in the film world. Like, I, I, I hope one day something comes close to that experience because it, I have such a love for for the time we all spent together. You, you mentioned that you create playlists for each of your characters when you prepare for them. What was your playlist for playing the character in The Namesake? Google? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I would have to go back and, and look. The only playlist I remember, <laughs> the only song, the only thing I remember is for the first Harold and Kumar, uh, there was a lot of Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre on that, on that playlist because it was yeah. era of the of the characters. I'd have to go back and look for for Gogol, um, I think in the novel, 
Was he a big Beatles fan? I can't remember. I remember. There, there were. I think there were a couple of music references in the novel that I picked up on, and then I, I texted or emailed Jumba a few times to ask for more ideas. What is Jumba and Mira and Irfan Khan? How are they like? Incredible. Like, so uh, for folks who have not read the book and maybe don't know, Mira Nair's first film, or, not, or her second film, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Mississippi Masala came out when I was in high school. And it was one of the big catalysts for me in, in wanting to be an actor. It was seeing people who looked like us on screen. And up until that point, it was either cartoon characters, you know, usually voiced by white folks like Aku or whatever. On right. shows, obviously it's a funny show, but when you only see people who are supposed to be brown depicted that way, and then you see something like Mississippi Masala with fully fleshed out, flawed brown characters, it really opens your eyes and makes you feel seen and heard and makes you feel like you have maybe boundless possibility yourself. So Mira had been somewhat of a role model to me for years before I had the chance to even meet her and work with her. And um, as a director and as just a human, what an incredible, warm, giving person. Her attention to detail is immaculate. Um, She gives her actors the gift of time, which is a rarity in the film and TV world because you know, every second that you're on set costs quite a lot of money. You've got hundreds of people that you're paying. You have, you know, time is money for as long as you have. So to give your actors time to settle into a scene or to take a few beats before you actually start shooting something is a rarity that she just does so, so beautifully and so specifically. I've gotten to know Jump, obviously, in the years since the namesake. I think the world of, of her, um, Irfan was... Um, Irfan was so incredible, uh, obviously a commensurate actor. He did something that I really love, which is to be able to tell a story through silence. Um, there's a scene in particular when uh, Gogol and his dad, so Irfan and I are in the car, where I find out about the origin of my name. So Gogol finds out why he was named Gogol. And so much of that scene is played in silences. And so much of it, I'm just sitting next to Irfan and the camera's in front of us through the windshield. And I don't even have to look at him because the, the few words that we have in those scene, in that scene, the, the, I, I can feel what he's feeling. Like just the, the presence of what he brings to that scene is to me so real and tragic and beautiful in all the right ways that um, he was just, to, to, I, I'm so blessed to have the chance to have, worked with him and obviously wish he was, you know, wish he was still around. Um, your job in public service, you did some really cool things. And you, you, it was a really inspiring to, to see what you were going through, your day-to-day tasks and what it is to be working for government. And I wanted to know if you would ever go back. Oh, I, you know, I, uh, I would love to in, a, in the right circumstance. Like I, what I love, my first love is acting, right? So right. I, I feel so lucky that I had the chance to, take that sabbatical for two and a half years and then come back to acting. But yeah, I still help out friends, especially who are on the local or state level. Um, incidentally, I think, and I don't know if you, if you guys have posted about him before, but uh, Zoran Mamdani. Yeah. It's such a cool guy. The guy's oh. running, that guy's doing the, that guy did the taxi. Uh, yeah. He fought for taxi, did the hunger strike. Yes. And uh, so when I read your book and his name comes out, I'm like, Whoa. Yeah. Oh. He is awesome. And that was the, Best news ever. To um, He invited me down there um, when they were on, I think, day nine of their strike. And it, that was incredibly emotional just to spend an hour with them. And then to get that news, you know, a week and a half later was so cool. The, the reason I mentioned him is there, there are people who continue to inspire me, some of whom, like Zoran, are good friends. Um, and then others, you know, who like uh, Nithya Raman in L.A., who I've only met recently. She's on city council here also an incredible progressive. Um, there are people who really excite me who I'd love to, to continue to help out. In terms of being in, you know, working in government again, I think it, it would just depend. I, I've made no secret of the fact that I would love to leverage my private sector arts experience into uh, something in cultural diplomacy, whether it's, you know, being an ambassador one day and, and being able to merge my, my two interests or, or doing something in that space. I'd, I'd love to do it in the future, but Right now, I'm really excited to be acting again. Um, I, I think that's all the questions I wanted to ask. You know, I was really nervous coming here, but you made it so easy. Why? Oh my God. I was nervous, dude. You, I, what are you talking about? You're like a pro. 
no, hold on. First of all, you're. The, do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? Hold on. No, no. The stuff that you do is uh, it. I know that I'm not just speaking for myself. We're like to feel that connected to our history and what's happening now by the work that you put together and the things that you share with people. And the fact that it is fucking researched and it's out there and it, we don't get that. And we, I, I was sad, for example, in terms of like the mainstream community papers, I remember India abroad went out of business maybe a year or two ago, they stopped their circulation. I think they're still an online entity, but like that was a real loss, I think for, and it started in the, you know, the, the uncle auntie generation of like, the first big wave of post 65 immigrants that came, that there was a resource, there was a paper, there was something that the community could learn about each other. And then for, for the collective us of a certain generation that want to know the history and want to know the struggles and want to be supportive of diaspora in a place where otherwise it's so fabricated based on, on language or, you know, region or ethnicity or even caste, unfortunately, like to, to be able to move beyond all of that with, with, it's a real, this is a real love letter to the work that you do, man. Thank you oh, for you're making me emotional, man. That's that means a lot to me. Like, what you, you know, it just means a lot. Thank you so much. Like, uh, is there anything you would like to add in? You want to, you know, the, the mic's yours, the floor's yours. Anything you want to plug in? Any future projects? I want to say thank you to people who have been so supportive over the years. You know, it, it's um, it, what's most exciting to me, which is why I decided to write a book that touched on all that. Oh, so by the way, yeah, so please buy the book, download the audiobook. I should say that I am I am here to promote a book, so I will say it was a real labor of love, and I did write this book hoping to share the story in a way that resonates with people, and and I hope that you you buy it and and, and listen to audio book or, or however you consume stuff these days. But the the thing that's most exciting to me is twenty years ago when I started out as an actor and went on all these auditions. There was a whole generation of people who came before me who we will never know as household names because there weren't opportunities for them, you know, and we know people who are just a few years older than me, like Ajay Naidu or Sarita Choudhury, who I grew up watching, you know, when I was in high school, but there are people who are, who are older than them, who are maybe 10, 20 years, 30 years older than me, who are fantastic theater actors who run their own theater companies, who've been living in LA and New York forever. Um, you know, we won't know their names because that op- they never had those opportunities. And now those opportunities exist because that younger generation of people who are writers and content creators and directors are coming through the ranks and are crushing it. And, None of that would have been possible without the community support either. So I just, I, since you're giving me the platform, I just want to say thank you to everybody who supported us in, in a real way. Like it, it really has made such a huge difference. Awesome. I'm, I'm pretty sure we would like to thank you because you've done so much for us. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much.